It's the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. The third phase of the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting trial begins today. Jurors will decide whether Robert Bowers should be sentenced to death or spend life in prison without a chance of parole for the shooting deaths of 11 worshipers from three congregations on October 27th. 2018. Bowers was found guilty on 63 federal counts, including murder and hate crime charges. David Harris is WESA's legal analyst, law professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and host of the Criminal Justice Podcast. David, thanks for being here as always. Kevin, good to be with you. David, final phase of the trial. We expect to hear testimony from survivors and family members in this phase. What are they trying to convey to the jury? Well, in the first phase of the trial, the guilt phase, you'll probably remember that many of the victims of the shootings and family members of the deceased talked about the horrors of that day. This time, the mission for them is a little different. They will talk about the loss of their loved ones. They are allowed to talk in terms of a kind of slice of life of what their loved ones meant in the family, in the community, in their businesses. All of those things will come out in this phase of the trial from the mouths of people who were victimized themselves or who were family members of people who were killed. Uh, Is this an attempt to turn the attention to some extent to the victims of this crime away from Bowers, the perpetrator, in a sense? Well, in a sense, yes, because as the Supreme Court has uh, regulated capital litigation, it's appropriate to do so now. The question is, what is what should the penalty be? And the, uh, that legitimately brings in the question of what kind of damage was done uh, by the killer. And so it does turn the attention away from Bowers to the victims themselves, to the people who were lost. And uh, uh, Bowers, of course, will have his own chances in this phase to turn the attention back to himself. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, During the previous phase, to determine whether Bowers was eligible for the death penalty, the defense put on experts to testify about his background, childhood, mental history. Are we expecting to hear anything new from them, or is it more of this that we heard during the eligibility phase? I think it'll be more of the same, but with some greater depth, maybe a few extra witnesses, perhaps even his mother. Uh, uh, it is a, a, a phase in which uh, the full scope of the trial turns to trying uh, to portray mitigating factors on Bauer's behalf, anything that pushes the jury away from the death penalty, of course, versus aggravating factors coming from prosecution and prosecution witnesses. So you'll hear much of the same thing we heard in the eligibility phase. And you ask yourself why. Uh, the answer is there is and never has been another issue in this trial other than what the penalty will be. And the defense used every other phase of the trial to kind of preview and reinforce what it planned to present at this phase. They've actually, the defense seems to have been building to this point, knowing that the guilt phase was basically predetermined. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, There was no question about guilt. There was little question, in my own opinion, about eligibility. So everything was targeted at this phase. Okay. Now, a death sentence has to be unanimous among the jury. David, what, what should we be expecting from the jury? It seems like that it would be different 
to say a person is eligible for the death penalty. These criteria have been met by the prosecution, but then actually sentencing the defendant to death, to me, at least seems to be a little bit different. Uh, well, by yes, the it's different. Yeah. Absolutely. Excuse me. It, it is different. Uh, in the eligibility phase, the question of the death penalty versus life in prison is still somewhat abstract. Now, uh, everything is on the line. I mean, the jury will be quite aware that the answer it gives will determine whether or not this person lives or dies. Uh, um, and and that is, you know, that's got to weigh heavily on any conscientious juror. It's just going to be a more difficult decision. And frankly, it should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this why the vetting process, the jury selection process took so long? Absolutely. You know, you have to qualify people for a death penalty jury in some ways that we discussed on previous shows. Uh, so those are legal requirements. But you've got a sense that that this is just the heaviest kind of responsibility a juror could have. There just isn't anything heavier than the idea of passing upon whether or not somebody should live or die on behalf of the rest of the community. And because of that, you've really got to screen people heavily. You've got to asking them their feelings about this. You've got to really plunge into who they are and what they believe. And that's what was done in the in the jury selection phase. Mm-hmm. And, and there really aren't that many, or are there um, death penalty cases in federal court cases? No, there are not. I mean, it's pretty uncommon. I mean, you get a sense from listening to the news and reading things that the, the federal government is this huge force in criminal law. And in point of fact, while they have among the largest incarcerated populations compared to the state, um, in, in criminal law, the, the the real game is at the state level. And so uh, they're proportionately have many fewer criminal cases and even many fewer death penalty cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been hearing that this phase of the trial in, for, in terms of testimony uh, could take a couple more weeks. But how long would it take for the judge to actually sentence Bowers after the jury makes its decision? Would it be pretty quickly or what? Yeah, it's a great question. After the jury makes its final decision, whether it's death or life, the jury has done its job three times over and the jury will be thanked and dismissed. Then we move into a sentencing hearing and the trial is really over. Guilt is decided. uh, The death or life decision is decided. But then the judge has to hold a separate hearing. But remember, there are 41 charges that did not carry the death penalty on which he must be sentenced. So that, I predict, will not happen immediately at all. It'll be weeks or even could be a couple of months before the final hearing. And finally, David, how much, if any, of a difference does it make whether Bowers is sentenced to death since President Biden's Justice Department issued a moratorium on federal executions? Well, it can make a difference. We don't expect an execution ever to take place in a short period of time. There will be appeals, and the appeals process could outlast even a second Biden presidential term. So another president and another Justice Department could have a very different attitude on the death penalty. It can make a big difference. University of Pittsburgh law professor David Harris is WESA's legal analyst. David, thanks so much. My pleasure, Kevin. It's the Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. 
how to use $3 million to address food insecurity in Pittsburgh. That's a big question before City Council this week. Council gave preliminary approval to a framework last week. WESA City Government reporter Kylie Kaczynski joins us now. Hi, Kylie. Hello, Kevin. All right, remind us, from where is this $3 million coming from? Yeah, so the $3 million comes from the American Rescue Act, the American Rescue Plan, rather. That's the federal program designed to help cities financially recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. The money was originally designated for the city's land bank, but after budget negotiations uh, last winter and a lot of public support around food justice initiatives, the city pulled the money from the land bank to kickstart this food justice fund. Mm -hmm. You mentioned budget negotiations and uh, advocacy on behalf of food justice individuals. But weren't they lobbying for more? Oh, yeah. For years, these advocates had been calling for $10 million, which is obviously considerably more money, but this is what they got. Okay. Now, you report that city officials and advocates have been meeting to determine a plan on how to best use this $3 million. So what's in the plan, at least tentatively? So the proposal they came up with splits the money into two streams, one to make big investments in citywide food access. So think bigger infrastructure investments like expanding grocery stores or establishing direct food access programs. And then the other stream would be awarded in grants to support community groups that are already doing this work. Well, let's start with those big investments. Uh, Where and how would that money be allocated? You mentioned the supermarkets and expanding. But I mean, if people can't afford it, does that really uh, make food more accessible to people. Well, we're talking about $1.1 million in this first category. Uh, The city would hire a coordinator to identify appropriate projects to invest in that are aimed at improving food access and consumer health. And like I said, this could go toward grocery stores or distribution efforts. Uh, But Catherine Vargas, the city's Parks and Recs director, said that They were careful not to assign specific project ideas so they could stay flexible to emerging needs, like you're noting. Uh, But it does stipulate that the projects would fall into the $75,000 to $500,000 funding range. Where does urban agriculture come into play here? Um, Urban agriculture would fall into this first bucket. So uh, maybe we'll see some more community gardens and things like that. Um, There were quite a few urban farmers uh, present in council chambers really pushing for this money. Well, the reason I ask that is you say, you know, uh, community guards and all that, because the second stream of funding would go to community organizations. Mm -hmm. Who would decide which organizations or groups get the money and how much? So the city is going to plan to, if this plan passes, uh, contract a third party group that would manage that would manage awarding the grants. Um, The plan states that only groups with an annual budget under half a million would qualify. So, yeah, these are truly smaller grassroots groups, and the grants would range between $2,000 to $75,000. Okay, and it's an application process, what, for these groups? Yes, uh, the the specifics of that are to be determined, but it would be, um, you know, people could, uh, these groups could apply theoretically in the fall, and then the first grants would come out uh, in the spring of next year. If this plan goes forward. <laughs> if this plan, well, if this plan goes forward. Uh, Catherine Vargas, uh, director of Cities, Parks, and Recreation, played a role in creating this framework uh, that was given tentative mm-hmm. approval last week, still could be changed. Uh, what did she have to say? Well, she really stressed that these larger investments are vital to fill in the gaps in Pittsburgh's food access network. She said this could go toward everything from growing food to producing food, getting food to people. Um, and the system has gaps in, in all of those categories that this money could help uh, you know, soften. Okay. Now, if approved, 
this is sort of the culmination of years of advocacy, of lobbying mm -hmm. for it. Uh, so how, how interested, I mean, how excited are the advocates, the food justice advocates for this? Every time this particular uh, piece of funding in this program has come up before council chambers, there have been, I don't know, I would say maybe 10 times more public comment presenters than normal. So there's, there's a lot of support, a lot of active support for this program. Uh, like you alluded to, these groups started advocating for this under former mayor Bill Peduto, um, noting that hunger issues were exacerbated as a result of the pandemic. Um, and then, you know, they continued the effort under Mayor Ganey, and here we are with uh, $3 million. And uh, I want to get to the final steps uh, for this, but I wanted to ask you this, if it is known. So we have $3 million. Mm -hmm. And sort of have a framework, it'll final passage or not, uh, this week. But that money will run out. And is this going to be a long-term solution or not? What are they saying? That's a huge question mark. So like you said, this first part is funded by you know federal aid money that will run out. Um, Catherine Vargas noted that perhaps once these new programs and these grants go out, that the Pittsburgh's philanthropic community might get excited about uh, the stuff that we can do in this space and, and they may chip in. Um, that's kind of what uh, the advocates are hoping for at this time. But you're right. Uh, it's not clear if the city has another $3 million to give this program in a few years. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and briefly, Kylie, are there examples of food justice funds in other cities? Yes. Philadelphia, where many ideas in Pittsburgh come from, uh, their health department organizes a similar food justice fund. And finally, uh, we are close to a final vote. Could there still be changes? It appears so. So City Council President Teresa Kale Smith uh, expressed some concern about the city handing money over to community groups without what are, in her mind, adequate auditing by the city. Um, this has been something that she's stressed about with other programs as well. Um, in addition to that, tomorrow we could see a proposal to change how the Food Justice Fund coordinator position is funded. She had suggested maybe using a vacant position in another department to fund that job. So we'll see. And we'll look forward to your reporting on that. Kylie Kaczynski is WESA City Government Reporter. Thanks for your time and for that reporting. Thanks, Kevin. It's the Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. An amendment to the Municipal Claims and Tax Lien Law now allows cities and others to take control of privately owned blighted properties. Becca Simon is Director of Programming at Grounded Strategies, which aims to address vacant land in Pittsburgh and joins us now. Welcome, Becca. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, really, to start off, how do you define blighted property? So we don't actually use the term blight at my organization because it's a very distinctly racially, um, like historically wrong term. We actually use the terms vacant, abandoned, distressed property, but this can range from properties that are overgrown, structuralist properties to condemned um, and abandoned houses. Um, the city of Pittsburgh has around 30,000. The county is estimated between 60 to 90,000 properties. And so this is a huge problem that not only Pittsburgh faces, but really the larger Rust Belt and legacy city region has been facing for decades and decades. Uh, to clarify, you said 60 to 90,000 properties is the estimate? Est estimated, yeah. Mm -hmm. So before this amendment, was it possible for Grounded or any entity to take control of a privately owned property that was in these conditions that you just described? 
So yes, there are a number of different pathways we can pursue. Um, grounded is not specifically in the process of purchasing land, but specifically helping residents purchase land. But by having this um, amendment happen, it's going to help speed up the process. So a lot of residents we work with are trying to purchase privately owned tax delinquent properties, oftentimes right next to their house. And these lots can have tens to 30,000s of back taxes from years of that interest rate building up. But now with the share of sale, when entities like the land bank in Pittsburgh or Tricog Land Bank are now able to go that share of sale and have priority bid and not have to work against developers outbidding them. And that property will now move through with clear title, which makes that process so much faster and cheaper for not only those entities, but our residents who deserve to have those properties that they've been working on for so long. So let's talk about how you help a resident. Do you help residents acquire property with the purchase or after the fact or the whole process, but you actually help them financially? Yeah. So we try to help them through the whole cycle that is basically acquiring and sustaining and passing on land. And so um, whether that be a resident trying to use the city of Pittsburgh's adopt a lot program to use a short-term lease or license or purchase through private sale, treasure sale, the land bank, um, any of the entities that offer ownership pathways, we try to help process through, through that. And once they have access to that lot, we help them um, obtain resources, uh, volunteers and support to develop that lot as well as oftentimes helping partner on grants and opportunities to help really establish that program and any builds on that site. Mm -hmm. And then um, really finally that last step is thinking through how can we help them sustain that site and pass that on to the next kin or other community members. So uh, making sure that residents have estate planning, family planning, wills, making sure that deed and that trust is set up. So um, we're really building out those pathways now, but those are our goals in the future, and we hope to one day have some sort of acquisition fund to help subsidize the rate of the cost of purchasing these properties. Mm -hmm. This amendment to the law has to do with the land bank's participation in share sales where repossessed properties are put up uh, for auction for back taxes. But when you encounter such a property, what are your goals for it? So our goals are whatever the residents' goals are, but main goals is to understand who's owning that property right now. What's the financial situation? Are there thousands of dollars of back taxes on that property? How the actual lot looks in person? You know, we go out and do physical assessments because, as many people know, a lot of demolitions in Pittsburgh led to the um, foundation just being buried into the site, which can make it really hard to redevelop, whether that be for housing or urban agriculture. You know, there's issues with the actual concrete foundation still being the site. There's issues of lead and asbestos and other heavy metals. So we have to really think through diligently, what is the end goal of this lot and how can we best support a residence goal, whether that be for playground, a side yard, a community garden or rain garden, whatever they want to see on that site. We try to help them step by step through that process. How long can it take for the city to acquire uh, such abandoned properties and do you think this will cut the time significantly? I would say so. Yeah. So, I mean, it really depends on the property and how um, bad the back taxes are too. Um, but we've seen properties take, you know, between a year, 18 months to almost now a decade for some residents who've been just trying to acquire side yards. Um, and it really just is dependent on how fast we can move through that process and how much support we can get. But we know that there's so many different steps between um, getting that property through the treasurer sale or getting it through legislation such as the side yard um, legislation required to move that property through. 
there's just so many different barriers, but we're really working with the different entities, including the city of Pittsburgh and the land bank to understand how we can make those barriers as easy as possible to remove. Has it been getting frustrating to go through this long process? It's frustrating to see our residents who have been working so hard. I work with residents throughout Larimer, Homewood, and the Hill District who've been taking care of these properties for you know nearly a decade now. And oftentimes these are either city-owned or privately owned properties, and they've been putting their own money and time and they're not getting to see that end result in the same way that they should, which would be owning those properties. What's a sustainable way to approach abandoned properties? I think taking that community's mindset first, you know, are we doing this with the community and not for the community is really important. You know, you've got to go out there and actually be on the ground. You can't make decisions for people because these are people's daily lives and their neighborhoods and they should be leading the cause. In our final minute, what improvements would you like to see how the city deals with abandoned, neglected properties that are really, let's face it, an eyesore and could be turned into something uh, beautiful or beneficial to many? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of partnerships out there. There's so many amazing organizations between Grow Pittsburgh, um, Action Housing, Grounded, um, Open Ministries, like just amazing groups out there that are really willing to step up and work with residents on the ground daily that this could really be an amazing and beautiful partnership to get these properties stabilized and turned back into assets to the community instead of these distressors in the community. Uh, do you think, and very briefly, Becky, do you think residents know that they can get these properties rather than just passing by them every day and maybe shaking their heads? I think residents are aware of the opportunities, but they know the barriers that exist and that it's a hard fight to go into. And so it takes a lot of resources. And as grounded, we try to help step in and make this as easy as possible. Becca Simon is the Director of Programming at Grounded Strategies. Becca, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And for today, that is the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. Next time, Lieutenant Governor Austin Davis began a statewide tour in Pittsburgh last week to address gun violence, explore effective prevention programs, and make communities safer. The Lieutenant Governor joins us tomorrow. Thanks to our team, Addison Deal, Laura Sutsui, and Mary Lee Williams. I'm Kevin Gavin. Until next time, hope you have a good day of good news. <laughs>